Calvin Williams, Wednesday mornings from midnight to 1 a.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. On the other hand, plotted a course through the river's end. The force of every man drawn by the horse of the caravan. No support for the vagabond, breaking the fragile bond of our cultural legacy. We land upon a new identity. Randomies battle on, from Babylon to the castles of the Catalan. We turn our back upon our melodies. Here at last, working as an outcast, they live off our toll, yet the people harass us. Problematic, there's no magic. Misfortune, tell her it's tragic.
Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And today with us is Anthony J. Picone, uh, an award-winning playwright and producer based in New York City. His full-length drama therapy session with myself premiered in January 2019 at the Hudson Guild Theater before transferring in May to the Crane Theater for an extended run of monthly performances. Uh, additionally, as a collected canon of one acts have previously been presented at NYC at the uh, New York Winterfest, Planet Connections, Theater Festivity, Midtown International Theater Festival, and Manhattan Repertoire Theater, as well as regional venues. Um, so welcome, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so let me just move the mic a little bit down. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, yeah, good, good. So, the joys of being a short guy. <laughs> so why don't we start off a little bit with, um, you know, how the evolution of a, a therapy session with myself and how that came to be and a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Sure. So um, I started writing a therapy session with myself in 2015, um, right before my senior year of college. And it came at a time of my life where I had been going for quite a few years with really bad social anxiety. I had lots of on again, off again friendships, which are explored in the play. And right before my senior year of college, I was like, oh, fuck, I'm about to graduate from college and go out into the real world. This was around the time I was really starting to take writing really seriously as my career in the future. And I was like, I there's some stuff I could do to work on this. And so this play is about the moment in my life where I'm sort of thinking to myself, "Okay, can I overcome my social anxiety? Am I going to go out there and try and improve my social skills, try and overcome traumatic events that led me to why I was so particularly anxious at that time in my life. And it's based on lots of memories from my freshman year of high school to my last year of college. I call it a semi-autobiographical play, but the truth is it's really about 80 to 90% true. And I changed the names and some of the characters are based on more than one person and you know, maybe someday I'll write a book 30 years from now and tell people exactly what happened. But for the most part, it's really true. And yeah. I just wanted to write something that explored mental health and particularly from the perspective of someone like myself and maybe show people a side of it that maybe isn't shown in mainstream art and mainstream pop culture. Cause it's great that these issues, issues of mental health and autism awareness are being explored more and more in the mainstream, much more than when I was first born in 1992. Yeah. But I still think there's a lot more that can be done to go into the deep, deep details of it, which are kind of ugly and not exactly things you can really glamorize. So, so you were influenced by, um, avant-garde theater i understand or how, how, Uh, yeah, elements of it. Um, when I was in college, um, I took experimental theater classes. I took uh, regular playwriting and scripting classes, obviously, too. But um, mm-hmm. my theater program, I went to Eastern Connecticut State University. And the classes I took there, the professors there were really into, like, experimental, absurdist-type theater. Mm-hmm. I remember um, during my second to last year of college, I took an experimental theater class. And I was a dramaturge. Dramaturge is like an editor slash research assistant for anyone listening who doesn't know. Um, And on some scripts for a few productions we did through that class. And as I was like editing these scripts 
and analyzing them and then watching actors perform them on stage, mm. I was thinking to myself, wow, like theater can be like a back and forth in terms of dialogue. And don't get me wrong, a lot of my plays do have that, and especially this play, which is literally a back and forth between a character and his subconscious. And but there, you can also have lots of stage directions and lots of creative ways of expressing ideas and expressing messages. And there's a tiny bit of that in this play too. And also I was reading lots of plays where they play with story structure and where there isn't necessarily a straightforward beginning, middle and end. And that's something that I think you can definitely see in this play. Cause I wanted this play a therapy session with myself to feel more like a stream of consciousness rather than a traditional plot. Cause if you ever try having a conversation with me, like for well over an hour, we'll see if that's how it is today or not. But <laughs> you know, it's, I tend to be pretty stream of consciousness. Like it's like, I try my best to stick to the specific topic, but you know, who knows where my mind's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. So you were talking a little bit about uh, in your pre-interviews, we get, get a sense of the, uh, you know, always with these uh, interviews, we, we get a sense of the guests, you know, through the pre-interview questions and uh, some of the artifacts that have influenced you growing up and until mm-hmm. today. And talk a little bit about kind of like, you know, you mentioned a little bit like the uh, uh, interesting story about the Wizard of Oz and all yeah. that. Yeah. Tell us yeah. Um, that. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of touching on my very first introductions to theater and being dramatic and stuff. So. Yeah. When I was um, really young, um, my first words were reciting movies and TV shows, like from when I was three, three years old onwards. Like, like when I was a year old, I was diagnosed with autism, and initially, people, the doctors anyway, thought I would be nonverbal and that I would never speak. And when I was three years old, um, I said my first words, the opening monologue of Jeopardy. Wow. I'm told I pretty much nailed it, except for calling Alex Trebek Alex Correct. So, um, <laughs> and then I transitioned to um, movies I watched as a kid, um, TV shows I watched, sometimes some stuff that my mom might have had on in the room that, you know, like other game shows and stuff like that. I don't really remember the specifics beyond the Jeopardy story, to be honest. And eventually I did transition to conversational speech, but I still love to reenact movies. And so The Wizard of Oz excuse me, the Wizard of Oz example is the one I remember because there's actually videotape still on, I don't know if we could still play it because it's on VHS, but <laughs> um, my mom still has it, sure, in like a basement or storage or something, I'm sure, where I literally reenacted all the characters of the Wizard of Oz in front of, like, it was at a children's museum where they had like cameras for like kids to like record like fun stuff or like kid things, but yeah. I had costumes. I enacted everything. I was like, she's dead. You killed her. I didn't mean to kill her. I swear. <laughs> Hooray for Dorothy. The wicked witch is dead. Yeah. I reenacted every single line. Wow. So excellent. excellent. All the other kids were of course impatient for me to get through it all, but I had uh-huh. fun. So, and That's that was great. sort of the beginning of me being my, theatrical self i guess yeah so that's great that's great and so um it's so important for kids to like you know bring out this uh joy and and, and definitely acting acting and all that and all this kind of thing um but then it seems like you as you grew up how did that how to develop you put, put down you were one of those emo kids yeah <laughs> okay so um 
So there's actually a bit of a dark, a darker story. Um, when I was freshman in high school, I had been in a private school for um, special ed kids from fourth grade up through middle school. But then I transitioned back to a public school. And that wasn't easy. The particular school I went went to was actually a technology themed magnet school at the time. After that, I, after that first year, I went back to my public school in my town, which was Windsor High School in Connecticut. Um, but during that first year, um, I had some bullying incidents. There was a particular incident involving a belt. I remember, you know, just name calling and stuff like that. You know, rumors and stuff, and you know that got to me and I was a very sensitive kid at the time. So, and you know, this was the late two thousands. So naturally a lot of kids would dye their hair black to make them to show, look at me, I'm depressed. Like <laughs> I'm not like making fun of that or anything, but like, that's what I did. And, yeah. um, so yeah. And eventually when I was a sophomore is when I kind of transitioned away from that fashion sense and I started doing drama club and stuff like that. So, but yeah, it was, there was definitely a, time in my life where i was like an emo slash pseudo goth kid almost uh-huh. like you know i kind of laugh at it a tiny bit with those with in terms of the appearance but it was a very dark time in my life though so you know yeah. but so now with writing a therapy session myself did you interact with all these different aspects of yourself and it seems like oh the way sense that is like mm-hmm. the subconscious or some kind of personification of subconscious talking to and tell us a little bit about the psychological process that happened. Was it, was yeah. it therapeutic and all that kind of thing? Oh, it was definitely. Yeah. It it still is therapeutic because there are certain memories that some of those scenes are based on that, you know, I I didn't really fully process them mm. as they happened. And, um, for example, like there was a certain tragic moment in my life right before my senior year of college involving something, involving someone who I was close with. And I hadn't fully processed that at the time. I was still in shock. And it was during the rehearsal process for, as I was going, we were going into the Hudson Guild, I was producing it and watching it play out in rehearsals as it came to life. That I really started to think like what this person meant to me. Like, I don't want to, I, I don't want to go too much into the details because yeah. I don't want people to see the play and they'll see for themselves what yeah. I mean. But it's definitely been therapeutic though. And you know, there's, it just brings back so many memories, but at the same time, it kind of has helped me move on because I'm able to put it down. I'm able to put myself out there into the world mm-hmm. and kind of move on from that chapter of my life. As weird as that sounds, I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, yeah, like, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I was going through periods of depression and anxiety and all this kind of thing and mental health issues. And, you know, I've written uh, about them mm-hmm. uh, in various poems and stuff. And it helps me kind of process it yeah. as well. It, I and think it it's definitely you know. something that helps a lot of people. Like, yeah. I'm definitely someone who endorses, even if you've never written anything in your life, you should just try writing. Like you mentioned poetry, like just yeah. writing down a couple sentences about how you feel because yeah. it works wonders mm. on your emotional so health. we were talking a little bit about um, like how – society processes things, these things as well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we all individually seem to suffer, but also sociologically we seem to suffer from a problem with not being able to advocate correctly for it and be able to help people and, Definitely. and all this kind of thing. What are your perspectives on how advocacy can be improved for <sighs> mental health issues and such? Um, well, I mean, the most common <clears throat> thing that comes to my mind in terms of advocacy 
because I said I'm on the autism spectrum. I have what used to be called Asperger's syndrome. And I was think when people think of autism advocacy, they tend, they tend to think of groups like Autism Speaks, which mm. on the one hand, I don't know if it's changed since then, but I don't think there's anyone on the autism spectrum who is at, involved at the top level of that organization. And, or at least not many, they may have changed it recently, but it's still a very small minority. And I don't see very many examples of people who, frankly, are succeeding like as high functioning adults on the autism spectrum, let alone succeeding in the fields that they are most passionate about. So, you know, I it's nice to see people who are able to hold a job, who are able to live independently and things like that. But I feel like a lot of us, anyone who has met someone on the autism spectrum knows that it's a spectrum. So there are some people who it might affect in some ways, but there are other people who maybe are affected by it in terms of their communication and such, but are also living perfectly healthy lives. And I would like to see examples that really defy the stereotypes surrounding autism, because I still feel like there are lots of people who think being autistic is the same as being frankly unintelligent. Like, I think that's still a very common perception out there. Um, in the opening monologue of the play, there's a portion where the character talks about how people still use it as a word that's intended to be insulting. And, you know, I think a lot has changed again since the 90s when I was diagnosed, but I still think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And so mm. that's one of the things that I hope maybe a conversation will start with this play or at least be fueled with this play. I think people are starting it already, but I think, again, there's a lot more that needs to be done. Yeah. It's so great that you're bringing awareness that you're kind of advocating as well through the play for people to reflect on their own opinions. I know a lot of times, mm -hmm. you know, um, at a certain point in time, you know, Rain Man was the only thing that people knew or at least right. back in the eighties or whatever, yeah. you know, Rain Man was the, one of the most uh, prevalent examples in pop culture of someone with autism. Right. And then uh, later on, you know, we started getting more and more representation. And, you know, I think there was, uh, I, I remember hearing, I didn't actually see it, but I remember hearing about a TV show or a movie about a doctor. Suppose you had. Uh, yeah, I forget. Yeah. I forgot I the example, but like, because yeah. I think it aired around the time I moved to New York and I was without yeah. um, basic television for all, yeah. and Netflix and not much else. So I, unfortunately, The Good Doctor was the good it doctor. called? Yeah, the Good yeah, Doctor. Yeah, the good that's doctor, right. Yeah. Um, I heard good, great things about it. So yeah. that's one example, I think, mm. of someone who's on the spectrum and who does really well in life. But so, yeah. so um, I definitely yeah. do think there's positive change, but we need a lot more. So, yeah. And also we think about like, um, you know, the uh, one of the themes that Shaw has to do with personal is political and how, you know, being being true to ourselves, how finding our truth and and letting that empower ourselves and our communities People have listened to the show and know that we try to explore that and how mm -hmm. we can kind of ripple effect out there and have effects on others. And, and, and if it gives a little bit of your perspective on that phrase and, and how that, um, how that mean, what that means to you. What does the personal is political mean yeah, to me? Yeah. Um, I think I said something in the pre interview questions about this, yeah. but, um, I, there are multiple ways that I could interpret that, but, yeah. um, I think when people are looking at social and cultural issues or political issues, um, they tend to be look at it through their own personal lives. Yeah. And so we tend to make decisions 
as a society based on our own experiences, but our experiences are limited based on what we've lived through and uh, based mm. on the people we surround ourselves with yeah. and what they've lived through. So, you know, like in terms of how it might relate to this play, um, I think maybe if they haven't met someone or maybe if they haven't met enough people who are on the autism spectrum, then they might have a skewed perception of what that might be like. Or you could say the same thing about someone who has really extreme anxiety or let's say bipolar disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, all sorts of mental illnesses that are out there. So like, that's the way I interpret it. I hope, I hope, I don't know if that answers your question. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good to like always remind people that, you know, of their biases and, and, and how, absolutely. And for, I'm being aware of them and also how, um, by continuing to explore and, and expose yourself to different perspectives and different communities, that you'll be able to be more informed about what your personal truth is. So you, you'll be able to uh, have genuine interactions with people who are of different uh, backgrounds and different uh, communities. And th- that integration, that communication helps uh, the, our, our perspectives on philosophies and, 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 uh, and, and political, as- political issues, how we advocate, what we advocate for, how we advocate, you know? Yeah. And like, in terms of it being a political issue, like I know lots of politicians, I I shouldn't say no, I've seen lots of politicians uh, who talk about the opioid crisis, yeah. for example. I don't know how many people know this, but more people die each year from suicide, from intentionally killing themselves from, than from accidental overdoses. I'm not saying that opioid yeah. abuse isn't a serious issue. It absolutely is. But I don't see enough politicians talking about mental health and suicide prevention in the way they should. Yeah. I think Obama during his last year said something on world suicide prevention day, but that's the only prominent example I've ever seen. So, yeah, a lot of times and there's not much policy I see in terms of mental health. Broadly speaking, I think there's a lot more that could be done in that. So, yeah, my understanding is that a lot of times it's prescribed actually originally like some kind of a uh, painkiller is mm-hmm. prescribed and then people start to get addicted. You know, when they, when the prescription runs out, they yeah. start to deal, cope with that uh, addiction by finding opiates and all this kind Definitely. of Definitely, so the issues stuff. are tied, yeah, too. Right, so. very tied, and, all, and it requires, you know, a very, you know, real awareness of when these addictive substances are prescribed, you know, they have to really be monitored carefully. And Yeah, and, I yeah. mean, like, I, my own thinking on prescription medication has evolved over time. I do think prescription medications i myself am on prescription medications mm. for anxiety i think they can help but yeah. i think tre- educating people on the dangers of it and being responsible about mm. it i think is definitely important so mm. yeah so uh, as far as like um uh a little bit more about a creative life and and the, the, you mentioned a couple in your bio it says about different things you've done in addition to therapy session myself mm-hmm. um you know, uh, it was saying uh, you've worked on, uh, you know, you've been a poet, you've been all this kind of thing. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about all the things you've, you've been working on or, or just your writing life in general. How does that? Well, let's see. Yeah. Where do I begin with that one? Yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, I've, I'm pretty sure the first thing I ever wrote in my life was like some really bad Star Wars fan fiction when I was oh, seven. Yeah. But I'm not sure how much that relates to what yeah. I'm writing today. Yeah. But, um, like, you know, when I was a teenager, I remember writing short stories excuse me, short stories and poetry that was very dark at the time, not necessarily my best work at the time, I'll admit, but it was also therapeutic. So that was 
I guess you could say the beginning of that. Yeah. And then when I was in high school, I transitioned to theater initially as an actor. And so when I was a senior in high school, um, I remember getting the assignment for um, to write your own short play. I never considered playwriting seriously before. I think it was a short play called Text Messages that was written entirely in like abbreviated oh. lingo. Oh, nice, nice. But then when I was a freshman in college, before I ever took a playwriting class, I wrote a short play that was like almost like a one person show, but with flashbacks inserted in it. And one of the flashbacks was like similar to the subconscious sort of thing that you saw in therapy session with myself. So mm-hmm. it was like the beginning of that almost. Although I still wasn't taking in playwriting seriously. I was a theater major already by then, but I was more into like acting and to a lesser extent directing. Uh-huh. But then um, I actually changed to being an English major briefly. And then I think I was a communications major for a week during that same semester before eventually going back to being a theater major. But during that semester, um, I took a playwriting class and I enjoyed it so much. And I was thinking maybe this is something I could do seriously. And Mm. I eventually figured out how to put up my own work because it's very hard unless you have an agent. People always say that in order to get an agent, Unless you have an agent, it's hard to get produced by like a major off-Broadway or regional theater company. But unless you've been produced at a major off-Broadway or regional theater company, it's hard to get an agent. So, you know, that's what led me to self-producing in indie theater. And after college, I went to New York and I started with shorter plays. I had seven one-act plays produced at various festivals before doing therapy session with myself, which I worked on for like Three or four years, I think. Oh, yeah. Like before eventually it premiered. I did a developmental reading of it during that time too, but it was like very minimalistic. And yeah. so, but the Hudson Guild Theater production back in January was its first full proper production. And um, I had a lot of funds left over. So I was like, okay, I'll take it to a new venue and hopefully keep it going. And I have a very great team working on it. Um, a great director, Holly Payne Strange. Um, Lots of great actors who are working on who have worked on other short plays before and including one who I even went to college with in Connecticut, who's now living in New York. So, um, you know, it's just like I, I talked before about social anxiety and how it was hard for me to make friends. I'd like to think that I'm getting better in terms of my social anxiety now because of my work in theater and with writing and the fact that I seem to have so many people want to keep working with me in the first place, I like to think is a sign of that. So I'll let them speak for themselves on how, what it's like working with me. But I hope, I hope that they would say they enjoy working with me. So, yeah, I was going to ask about uh, collaboration and collaborative efforts and how you're able to navigate, you know, this is something that this is a play therapist with myself is something Mm -hmm. that's very personal to you and very, intimate your own biography. Yeah. So I imagine, I, I imagine like, well, at least, at least in my experience in theater, sometimes, you know, it requires a lot of skill to be able to navigate, you know, different, uh, different perspectives and how they want to, the visions and all artistic visions and, mm-hmm. and how, and especially given that this person is portraying like a version of yourself. Yeah. Like how are you able to navigate those, those, uh, those conversations and such? To be honest, this is, to be honest, sometimes it feels surreal to feel like these memories come out. Like, I feel like 
or at least it did. Like, I feel like at this point it's becoming easier for me to view it more objectively as like any other story. It's like its yeah. own thing. Yeah. But like at first I feel like it was much harder when I was actually writing the thing than it was seeing it presented by actors. Cause once you see it presented by actors, I feel like it sort of becomes its own thing. Yeah. This, distinguishable from anything else but as i was writing it that was really the hard time because i went through multiple rewrites the first draft was 77 scenes long they were very short scenes Mm. but like i kept reordering the scenes i took some scenes out i think i added a few scenes and i was like okay how do i want to word this how do i want to word that how will i not come off like I don't know, like a total asshole in this certain huh. scene during this particular moment in my life. Like, you know what I mean? So like it was the really the creative process more than anything else. I think I think it was probably like I, I as I said, like it's there were some moments that I still had to process from my life as I was seeing it as I was seeing it come to life on stage during the rehearsal process. But relative to the writing process, that was actually the easy part I felt. So yeah. So, um, as far as like different kinds of theater and such, um, what else are you seeing? Or is there any uh, thing that is coming up for you is that you like to uh, that you've seen in the past that influenced you? Shows that I've seen in the past, yeah. Um, I know this was a while ago, but um, I remember going to see um the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime oh, yeah. when that was on Broadway. That's a lot too. And, yeah, yeah and um, I loved that play. Um, I think um. It was flawed in its per- portrayal of autism, but it was still a wonderful play. And I love that it raised awareness. I love that there was a, an actor on the spectrum who was playing it, I think, for one of the runs. Um, and Simon Stevens in general, I, I'm a big fan of his work. I was in another one of his plays in college as an actor. So, you know, I love and that play I was in, which was about the terrorist bombings in London in 2005, it was all monologues mm. and it could be up for interpretation. So it could be those monologues could be one actor. They could also be multiple actors. Like you'd have to see the script itself to see what I mean. Mm. But like, so, you know, I think if you read a lot of my current scripts, like they're very monologue heavy. Mm. There's like, like a shitload of monologues that are probably some of the best moments in this play more than any of the dialogue driven moments. So like, I think it, those plays by Simon Stevens fueled my love of writing great dramatic monologues. I I shouldn't say, I hope they're great. But like people tell me that they're good. So, you know, I'm, I take it monologue writing is a strength of mine, but um, so yeah, I'd say that's influenced me. Like just plays that have, really great emotionally potent monologues so yeah <laughs> so um yeah we were talking a little bit about kind of our vision for society and mm-hmm. and how you mentioned you mentioned a little bit of this in the about uh, advocacy and how that can be improved yeah um a little bit more about like kind of like how this ripple effect can affect others and and dealing with social anxiety or what advice you'd give to others you know kind of like uh who are maybe coping with similar kind of situations what advice would I give to people yeah, with social anxiety? Yeah. Um, I mean, I know this is kind of cliche, and this, but this, and this is kind of the point in the play. But um, just try going out there and just try like 
stepping out of your comfort zone, do like an extracurricular activity that maybe you never would have thought to do otherwise. Like the example that pops to my mind is when I was a senior in college, um, I started doing volunteer work um, in the community near my college campus. I volunteered at after school programs. I volunteered at a senior home at a homeless shelter at a soup kitchen. The soup kitchen moment is actually one of the scenes in the play. Mm. And so, um, you know, that was during that time where I was like, I should try doing things to branch out, to meet new people, to improve my social skills. So I guess maybe just instead of just being in your apartment watching Netflix all day, <laughs> you know, maybe try seeing what else is out there. Like, and, you know, I imagine a lot of people listening to this are in New York and I was in Willamanta, Connecticut at the time where I did that volunteer work. So, you know, if I can do it in like the eastern part of Connecticut, then there's a lot more you can do, I imagine, in New York City. I know for a fact that's true. Like you can go on like a meetup group, for example, and see, like based on your own interests, or maybe something you've never tried before, mm. seeing what you could try. And so I could go on. More yeah. And more, but like that's what I would recommend. Me step out there, try like a new activity. Like it's feels weird at first because like. Doing that, like, especially if you're someone who is like me, or at least as I was for a while, and just really nervous to do anything other than your regular routine of like waking up, coffee, mm. go to class, go back home and do homework, go to another class, etc. So, you know, but mm. once you step out of your routine and maybe try changing up a bit and just try starting a conversation too, like, it's it's always hard when you have anxiety to initiate the conversation. But if you just just maybe have a smile on your face, not like an awkward smile, I guess, but like, you know, just try talking to them and, you know, who knows? And it doesn't have to be complicated, too. That's what I've learned about socializing. Yeah. Like, just let out whatever's on your mind, like, and maybe people will respond and, you know, you're not going to get along with every person you meet, but... You know, as I've learned, like you're never if you're honest about who you really are, you're never going to please everyone. So mm. once you've accepted that, then yeah. eventually you can just keep going until you find the people who are worth talking to in the first place. So, yeah, it really resonates with me. I think it's true that we have to find our personal truth and we have to kind of be expressed that. Mm-hmm. And also in social situations, it's like, you know, it's like uh, there's always a. There's always going to be these, you know, drop cues, and there's always in, in, in any in any person, but they they're always returning to the track, you know, always returning to the the object of the conversation or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be like, you know, it's like I think people at least when I when I suffer from these kinds of anxieties and and problems and such, it was like I would take these miscues or this missed problems very seriously and very like rigidly and yeah. you know, and very like oh, this is the worst thing in the world and. You know, yeah, kind of as thing, soon yeah. as there's like the tiniest fuck up yeah. that you notice in yeah. any conversation, yeah. you're like, oh, shit, what I do? Like, I, I should just retreat back into the corner. Yeah. Like, what was I even thinking? But like, you know, we all fuck up. Like, yeah. you will. I will. The people you will talk to in your life will or <laughs> have, whether they admit it or not. I know some <laughs> people like to pretend that they're perfect, but <laughs> even they at some point or another in their lives have done something so you just move on. And if they're not willing to move on, then they're just not worth your time. And eventually you find people who are, it doesn't always happen overnight, but 
especially if you're someone like me who first moved to New York and, you know, that always takes time, I notice. But, you know, it's you should still definitely try it, I think. Yeah. So um, one thing we were talking about was about, um, you know, the uh, you know, the politics and religion and such and how. Yeah. And you were saying, uh, if you tell us a little bit about kind of what thoughts and systems of thought have influenced you and uh, and how you're able to relate with that with your. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, a big part of what's part of this play um, is I've struggled with. Um, I mean, for starters, I haven't always grown up with a particularly religious background. Like mm-hmm. I, if you look at back at my relatives, it's a mixture of Catholics and Jews. So like, you know, not the sort of what you'd expect from like any com- any traditional families, usually either all Catholics mm-hmm. and Protestants or Jewish people are, and maybe some Protestants, but like anyway, so like I, but my mom never took me to like any sort of religious services. So I was never really particularly religious to begin with, but especially during high school, I struggled with the idea that like, how could anyone believe in a higher power if they would do the things that they did to someone like me? So like, you know, I know people might disagree and I don't expect to change people's opinions on this topic, but Mm. in the play, I, I talk about like how I was born with different wiring in my brains that sort of fucks up the way I communicate, like for lack of a more eloquent way of saying it off the top of my head. Um, Who, and then there's the stuff in the world that like so much war, so much discrimination. That's Mm. an exact quote from the play. Um, And, you know, that sort of stuff gets me thinking and it sort of led me to, I don't want to say nihilistic way of looking at life, but very cynical way of looking at Mm. life. And, you know, I've tried to be less cynical in terms of social settings, but I think the idea that like, anyway, yeah. So I think just wanting to find, like, obviously I have certain basic core values that I think you can find in lots of people who are both religious and non-religious, like, like you don't, you should treat others with respect. You should be kind to others. You should try and help others when possible. So, which is basically what humanism is all about. That's what I consider myself. I'm a humanist, but you know, there's so many, I'm someone who likes to know things. Yeah. And so the idea of, how did we all come here to the universe? Like, why do we exist? What's the me of life? Which, you know, are very deep questions. And like, you know, I don't presume to have concrete answers for like the overall me of life, but I've been searching for the me of my life for my entire adult life, even before, I guess, if back to when I was a teenager. And I feel like the closest way I've reached that is through my writing and putting it on stage and, spreading whatever messages they might have whether it be mental health awareness or social and economic justice or the environment just to name a few of the messages in my past plays Mm -hmm. um so but you know i still i still question like the me of life like when i'm gone like what will have all meant like what will my time on this earth have meant and i think that's something that every rational person has thought about at one point or another, but you know, that's, that's something I think about uh, like 
pretty much 24 seven. It's always in the back of my head. So, yeah. You're mentioning about documentaries being a big influence on you. Right? Kind of watching. Definitely. Like, so what were some of the documentaries you uh, watched or, or experienced that were very influential? I mean, I watched a documentary. Um, it was, I think it was like the BBC or something yeah. actually, believe it or not. And it was about, um, it was actually from the perspective of people who work um, at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Or mm-hmm. I, think, or I forget what I'm yeah. messing up uh-huh. the exact um, term, but um, people who work there and who are talking to people who are like in very desperate situations on the phone. And, you know, like before I started going back to therapy and eventually myself, like I called up like NYC. Well, the phone line for there a few times when I was feeling down in my life um, during certain occasions. And I was inspired to go find that documentary because I was curious to know what it was like to be on the other side of it. And, you know, it's just very heavy because you think about on the one hand, it's, I don't want to say encouraging, but it does remind you that you're not alone because other people are going out there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's also, you're not alone. And that's very depressing too. And it, it, it really gets you thinking like how could so many people in the world be feeling to the point that they want to end their own life? Mm. Like, like that's very sad. Like I don't like I was, I was saying earlier, like there's more that politicians can do. Like, I feel like this is like almost like a national crisis almost that there are people more and more who are killing themselves. I read an article a while ago, like a few months ago, that since the beginning of the century, around the time of 9-11 um, and the financial crisis in 2008, um, suicide rates have been steadily on the rise across all age groups. Mm. So I just think like, like there's people are already talking about this. Like whenever like a beloved celebrity like Robin Williams or Anthony Bourdain passes away, people are like, we need to raise more for suicide prevention. Like shows like, 13 reasons why I have done that to some extent too. But like, you know, I think there's a lot more that shows like that. And the mainstream media isn't really doing to address this topic because clearly it's still a very big problem, despite how many times people bring it up. And I feel like this, that's why I say there's more that needs to be done because I feel like people either don't know or don't want to know what it's really like to live in those moments. And I brought up that documentary because I feel like that does a really raw, it gives a really raw, honest picture of what it's like to be in that moment Mm. when you're either are that person or are hearing that person because, you know, people who are suicidal, like it affects the people obviously who are suicidal, but also affects their loved ones. So, Mm. And people can, um, like, like if you're someone, if you've never been suicidal in your life, like Mm. the chances are, you know, someone who has, so, Mm. yeah, people should definitely, um, you know, continue to work on, uh, in their empathy and, you know, continue to, you know, continue to show and, you know, advocate for, for lines like that and advocate, you know, because there's always, we all go through these, you know, people think of the spectrum of mental health, Mm -hmm. you know, that we all go through these times and periods where, we're um, either depressed or sad or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. And variations on that. And it's just, uh, you know, and to kind of segment the population who are 
going through extreme crisis is being like mentally ill as opposed to the mentally healthy. And the amount of extreme crisis, extreme examples has been rising. Like, obviously, I'm pretty sure everyone, like, I'd be curious to know who has never been even mildly depressed in their life. I would love to talk to that person to see, like, how did they, how do they make it through life without feeling that? But, like, everyone, I assume, has had at least mild depression in their life. But the fact that so many people could be severely depressed before. Yeah. It just gets you thinking, or at least it should, like it gets us thinking, but clearly, but I'm, I'm wondering, are there enough people who are seriously thinking about this? Like, so I think we're making progress. I, but I can't emphasize enough, like how much more we can do to spread and go really deep. Yeah. So, and that's what I try to do. Like, cause with this play to bring it back to that, um, Cause I felt like the best way was with my own perspective on it and to maybe piece together it and see like, okay, maybe this is what this person has lived with. Like maybe this isn't how everyone has lived with it. Of course, no one person represents everyone, but it might give you an example of how you're feeling and what your thought process is like. So, yeah, it seems to me that uh, people have internalized certain systems of thought and certain, um, perspectives that are just naturally from media and all these kinds of things, all these different even conversations and, and different ways in which people express their ideology or, or systems of belief. Mm-hmm. And they internalize other people's, you know, systems that don't work for them. Right. And then they end up kind of being mercy of, you know, systems of thought or, or, or perspectives that are not organic to their process, right. you know? So we end up kind of, um, kind of like uh, making ourselves victim of, 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 Processes that are just not healthy, you know, or thought systems that are not healthy. Definitely. So just so. being awareness, I think being awareness, one of the major things I, I advocate for is the meditative path and kind of bringing awareness of mm-hmm. um, our own systems and how these different thought systems can interact within ourselves and, and what implicit uh, systems we have in, in place based on what we're watching or what we're seeing or who we're interacting with. Mm-hmm. We're talking a little bit about bias and implicit bias and all these kinds of things. Uh, in which these systems work within ourselves and, and and govern the way we see the world, you know? Right. Yeah. So people can uh, check out a therapy session with myself. It's, it premieres, or uh, the new iteration at Crane Theater premieres this weekend, right? Is it, it's it's the, uh, the first performance is May 18th at 18th, 2 p.m. Yeah. Um, we're selling relatively quickly for the opening performance, I'll add. So yeah. you can go now to atswm.brownpapertickets.com if you like to buy tickets. We have more performances up to November um, on the third Saturday of every month at 2 p.m. And hopefully, if we do well, we'll add some performances for 2022. Great, great. And people also, in case they catch that, uh, brownpapertickets.com, they can also look look you up on your website, Mm -hmm. anthonyjpiccone.com, I believe, right? Anthonyjpiccone.com. Piccioni, Piccioni, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. It's fine. Uh, Everyone gets it wrong, yeah. so it's all good. P-I-C-C-I-O-N-E. That's me. Uh, so, I uh, <laughs> uh-huh. um, So, yeah, yeah. So, as we start to wind down, uh, let me just uh, give a few shout-outs for Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation, a monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us when you stay on air. So please support independent community media 
by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, Ready for Brooklyn, if you're listening on your computer, you can free yourself up by listening on our um, apps. Go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash iPhone or slash Android and download the apps. Um, today is 5-13. Uh, um, next, we, we air, we do Truth to Power Show airs every Monday at 8 a.m. Uh, we broadcasting on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Uh, you can go check out our archive of episodes at readyforbrooklyn.org slash Truth to Power and find out uh, the original song we played at the beginning of the episode was Fortune Teller by uh, Gaurav uh, Venkateshwar, and he was a previous guest uh, on uh, Choose the Power Show. So if you enjoyed that song, uh, please feel free to check out his previous episode, uh, previous episodes and previous episodes. Um, so, yeah, so anything, we'll go through some final thoughts before we play our exit song. Um, so what else is coming up for you, Anthony, uh, that... Maybe you want to talk about or plug or anything or. Well, right now I'm kind of looking at this as like it's 2019. So it's the end of a decade. Um, I started theater in 2008. So I've been in theater for about a decade. I'm kind of reflecting on therapy session with myself as like the cumulative point of that. Mm. But I'm also looking forward to some next projects that I'm yeah. currently writing, um, including some one acts. Um I'm writing a one act right now that deals with the health insurance industry and the cost of affording health care, which is a big, important issue, I feel like. And also about drug addiction. I'm writing a one act musical, actually, that I'm collaborating with a musician on. And hopefully both of those will premiere sometime in 2020. And also I'm writing a new full length play. And I don't want to talk too much about the details yet because I'm still writing all of those, especially the full length is only halfway done about, but you know, I'm very excited to be hopefully doing this for a very long time, presenting my work as a writer. And, you know, I think I'll be happy as long as I can keep doing that. So. Yeah. Great. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. We still have a few more minutes, but, um, uh, before I play the exit song. So, um, it's always like difficult with these these shows. I feel like the the conversation naturally <laughs> kind of ebbs and flows and all this kind of thing. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, what else is coming up for you as far as like um, like one of the questions was about uh, if you have everything you want in your life, what would it look like? How would you feel? Yeah. How would you act? What would it be? Maybe that might be a good thing to. Yeah, to I am. Yeah. I was um. Um. Well, I, I think I answered similarly for both like how yeah. I would be and how for society would be. Yeah. I would just like all of us to be more well financially because I think lots of artists especially um, struggle because we make certain financial sacrifices to do our career. But at the same time, um, it means we might not get to live as comfortably as we'd like. And I feel like I feel very strongly you shouldn't have to choose. So um Economic inequality is a whole nother issue in and of itself, but it's also tied to mental health as well. So, but I would like to think maybe there's a someday a possibility of a society where artists don't have to choose between living comfortably financially and being able to do what they love most for a living. So. Yeah, I think definitely social justice and such 
and economic opportunity for people. It's so important for us to, you know, think about all these people, you know, our communities and struggling. Mm-hmm. And we think about we, uh, so many people are so focused on, you know, uh, uh, so-called meritocracy and all that. Right. We want to be able to focus on uh, being able to allow people the freedom to be able to pursue their dreams and, and get beyond that struggle just to break through yeah. and just and, to be able to survive. And the survive, thing is we you know? don't live in a meritocracy yeah, no, right now yeah. at all. Like p- people who are very privileged but maybe suck mm. at what they do are more likely to succeed than people who have genuine talent but might not have a path forward in their career. So mm. Yeah, good. So we'll play uh, one of the things, one of the uh, songs I like is uh, Steady As She Goes. I, I, this something came up for me. Okay. Like just being able to, you know, for me at least that philosophy of being able to just continue to just keep it steady, keep things, keep the boat steady and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so this, this is a very nice song. Um, so once again, people can uh, check out uh, your work. Anthony J, you can go ahead and say the website. Pitch- Anthony J. Piccioni. Piccioni is spelled P-I-C-C-I-O-N-E dot com. Um, there's a page dedicated to therapy sessions with myself and another page to all my other plays I've written. And hopefully people will check it out. Hopefully people will come see my play and hopefully people will keep talking about and raising awareness for mental health and autism because that's what it's all about for me. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Here's today's she goes.